Welcome to Ordinary People with Extraordinary Lives, a podcast dedicated to the testimonies of believers and followers of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Arlene Spucklew. Hello, friends, and welcome to Ordinary People with Extraordinary Lives. I am your host, Arlenis. Uh, thank you for listening or watching to this new episode. It's always a joy to be here with you guys. If you are new to our podcast, welcome and thank you for listening or watching. I hope that this podcast can be a blessing to you guys. Our podcast uh, focuses on just bringing testimonies of believers and followers of Jesus Christ. If you want to stay connected, we would like to invite you all to follow us on social media. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. The easiest way to find us is by going on the link here on the show notes or the description. And if you are new, make sure that you go after this episode and check out the other testimonies that, that we've had. Uh, uh, they have been such a great blessing to all of us, and I hope that it can be an encouragement to you all. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you can be notified whenever we release a new episode. You can find us on YouTube as well, so you can make sure to subscribe on YouTube and you'll be notified whenever we release a new episode. Um, and today we have a new guest. Um, I actually met him. Uh, his name is Jim Osman, and I met him during Shepherd's Conference this year here at Grace Community Church. He is a pastor and author. Um, and we will be hearing a little bit more later on where he is um, past what church he's pastoring and and all of that. But uh, and then we also will be talking a little bit about the books that he has written. Uh, the most recent one that he wrote is God Doesn't Whisper. And then he also has um, other books that uh, they have been translated to Spanish. So I thought that was really cool. So we're going to be learning more about uh, his books and uh, just a little bit more about him as well in uh, his life and ministry. All right, friends. So thank you for uh, listening or watching. And here is my conversation with Jim. All right, friends. Uh, here I am with Jim. Jim, thank you so much for uh, joining me on this podcast. I'm really excited for uh, everyone to get to know you. And actually, I will be getting to know you too today. Uh, as I mentioned before, we met at Shepherd's Conference this year. Yep. And uh, it was uh, it was really fun. It was a really fun week. And, and just like that little short time that Andrea, who normally helps me with the sound, she's not here today, but uh, we got to meet you and Josh and you guys were there with Justin. So it was a, it was a, it was, a, it was a really nice time. So, yeah, welcome. It was. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. Yeah. So normally, you know, as I like to uh, start with my guests, I normally like to have them just kind of give us a little background about their upbringing and their family. You know, uh, where were where were you born? Where were you raised? And were you born into a believing family? And please, please feel free to share as much as you like. Okay. All right. Um, I live currently in Sandpoint, Idaho. Well, it's, it's in the northern part of Idaho, up in the Panhandle, about an hour south of the U.S.-Canadian border. So we're way far up north. And that's where I've lived since I was three years old. I wasn't born in Sandpoint. My family goes back five generations here in this area. My great-great-grandparents go back uh, in this, moved to this area originally. And so I have a lot of family here, a lot of cousins, a lot of extended family. Um, I like to say that my, I was born while my mom and dad were on vacation in California because that's where I was born, down in California. So oh. I'm, I wasn't born here, but by the time I was three years old, my mom and dad had moved from California to Portland to Spokane, back to Idaho, and been divorced in that period of time. So I also have a sister who is about three years younger than I am. 
And uh, I grew up here in Sandpoint, went to school here, graduated high school in 1990. And now I pastor a church here in Sandpoint. And I don't, uh, the church is actually in Kootenai, which is just a couple miles outside of Sandpoint. Uh, I actually didn't grow up in a church going family. My great grandparents on one side of my family were Seventh-day Adventists and raised uh, their kids very morally and according to the law so they don't eat pork. And so I kind of had that Seventh-day Adventist moral upbringing on one side. And then my great grandparents on the other side of my family, I think she was a believer and she actually had played the piano at the church and taught Sunday school at the church that I now pastor back in the 1970s and I think into the early 1980s. So there's religious influence there going back some generations, but nothing immediate. I didn't grow up in a, in a church going family, but I grew up in a single parent home. My mom never remarried. And so it was just my mom and my sister and I for all of those years. And uh, the way I got saved or the way that the Lord saved me, I should say, is um, I grew up just actually about a quarter of a mile from where I currently live, just down the street as the house I grew up in. And there was a family a couple of doors down, their oldest son had a, a Hardy Boy book collection. And I was an avid Hardy Boy mystery series reader at the time. And I was buying the books and reading them and rereading them. And I, I just loved them. And I found out that this guy that lived a couple doors down had the entire collection, volumes one through 59, I think it was, or one through 60. And he had a couple of rare books that I had never seen before and only heard about and didn't even, and a couple that I didn't even know existed. And so I went down to see that collection that started a friendship and that family actually attended Kootenai Church, Kootenai Community Church at the time. And that started a friendship and um, a mentorship really on his part of sharing the gospel with me. And that family did. They invited me to the church. They invited me to Sunday school and youth group and vacation Bible school. And I started attending those, uh, got, got in with some friends here at the church. I know I heard the gospel uh, dozens of times through the preaching, through Sunday school, through vacation Bible school. I memorized scripture. I was involved in all kinds of scripture memorization and church activities, but I wasn't saved. Mm -hmm. And finally, when I was 15 years old um, or 13 years old in 1985, uh, the church, I, I, I wanted to go to vacation Bible school, but I was too old. So the church offered to give a scholarship to the local Bible camp to any, any of the teenagers who helped out at vacation Bible school. So I signed up for that. This is a way of helping out. So I helped do games at vacation Bible school. And this was the summer of 1985. And then after vacation Bible school, I went to camp for a week with my friends and hung out. And it was in the final day of that first week of camp that I heard the gospel. And I like to describe it as my entire world went from black and white to technicolor. All of a sudden, I, I understood it. And I thought, I have to have Christ. If I die without Christ, I'm going to perish because I am a sinner. I knew that I was a liar, thief, a blasphemer, an adulterer at heart. I understood that I had violated God's law. And I understood that I, if I died at that moment without repenting and trusting Christ, that I would go to hell. So this was in a camp setting where they shared the gospel and then had an altar call. Mm -hmm. And the counselor that I had in my camp or the cabin leader, uh, he was in the row with me. And I was sitting between my two good buddies that I was there with at the time. And I don't remember who the speaker was. I don't even remember what the speaker spe spoke on, but I know that at that moment I understood the gospel. I, and he gave an appeal and altar call. And I jumped up when the time came, like my pants were on fire and I ran to the front. And if he had told me that I had to swim the Atlantic ocean to be saved, I would have given it a shot, but he just said, you had to pray this prayer and that the counselors would go out with you later on and pray the prayer. So I stood up front there, barely able to control my own emotions because I knew that my I knew that mm -hmm. I, I was making a decision. I was doing something or something had happened to me that would forever affect my life. 
And uh, I sat down outside after that with my a cabin leader. His name was Robbie. And he said, I want to make sure you understand this. And, and I prayed to trust Christ for salvation. Now, I, I'm always very clear to say that I didn't get saved when I prayed the prayer. I didn't get saved when I went forward at the altar call. I got saved when I was sitting in that chair and I understood the gospel and it clicked. And at that moment, God caused me to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I mean, the, the gospel came to me, not just in word, but in spirit and power. And the Lord saved me. He regenerated me at that moment. And I got up, I, I went forward. I was already saved at that point. I prayed the prayer. I was already saved at that point. Um, God regenerated me. So that was 1985. And uh, since I didn't go in, I didn't uh, grow up in a church going home, I attended to attend church at Kootenai Community Church, kind of by myself, uh, sometimes with my sisters, sometimes with my friends, and we would go sort of hit and miss. And I really struggled all the way through high school with leading a God-honoring life. And I finally decided when I was a senior in high school that I needed to go to a Bible college. I didn't intend to stay at Bible college. I just wanted to go one year to kind of get a good foundation, a grounding to to figure out what this Christianity thing was and to kind of to, to get over the ups and downs of the Christian life, you know, emotional mm -hmm. highs and then um, dropping down and, and getting involved in sin and, and not walking with the Lord. I, I knew that there was something that would ground me in the faith and I, and I wasn't well taught at all, even though I was attending church and that kind of sporadically, I mean, really on and off. Mm -hmm. So I went to Miller College of the Bible in Pamburn, Saskatchewan in the fall of 1990. Uh, after I graduated from high school. So that's how the Lord saved me. And that's how I grew up. And I'm still living in the same town that I grew up in. Yeah, that, that was something really interesting, because I went to uh, the website, um, one of the websites that I found, I think it was for for your church or something like that. And it was giving like a little biography about you and, and everything. And I'm like, wow, he's been there for a long, long time. But I didn't know that you had actually been born here in, in California. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a, I try not to say that too much. <laughs> Cali boy. <laughs> but live in Idaho. <laughs> I'm as native to Sandpoint as I can possibly be without actually being born here. <laughs> yes. I have, I have vague memories of, of things in other places before we landed in Sandpoint, but all yeah. of my, all of my growing up has been here. Wow. That's awesome. And uh, so I'm very curious to know, um, you know, when, um, when you're like, being exposed to the gospel well clearly you said that you had been raised just you know to be someone moral and you know uh but nothing with like church going or being taught i guess you know like yeah. the word mm -hmm. of god so do you remember like what was going through your mind at this point like this is brand new to you <laughs> everything that you were hearing did you find yourself either not wanting to like refusing to believe what what they were being you know what you're being taught and on all of that or were you just very open to hear what they had to say yeah i, I my resistance to the gospel when i first started to understand it was not so much a hostility like i don't believe this i i reject this i was I would say that I was more exploring my options as it were. So even though, I mean, my great grandparents used to speak of the things of God. My grandparents were, I mean, my grandmother had grown up in that Seventh-day Adventist home. And so she wouldn't eat pork and she would talk about God. And my great grandmother would talk about God and the 10 commandments and Jesus. And so I had these ideas that there was a God, that there was a moral code, there was a heaven, there was a hell. I grew up understanding those things. And that, that moral structure made sense to me. Hmm. So I never, I never really denied that there was something other or outside of this life or beyond this life. 
Um, but then when I got into my early high school years, I started, you know, I was exposed to evolution. So I started toying with that idea. So maybe, maybe things evolved. Maybe there isn't a God, maybe atheism is a potential, maybe we were planted here by aliens. And so I started to kind of in, in my mind sort of circulate through all of the various options, right? right? If there is a God, how do we know which God it is? Is, the, is there multiple gods? Is, is Jesus a God? Is Jesus is just a quasi-divine being? I, in my mind, even though I was, I was hearing the gospel and going to church, in my mind, I was, I guess, exploring all of the possibilities, mm. um, if this is true or not. And I wasn't overtly hostile, like rejecting or hating any of it. I just yeah. wanted to make sure that when I landed on something, that I landed on what was true. That was what mattered to me more than anything else. And so uh, I remember challenging the people who were sharing the gospel with me a lot saying, okay, what about aliens? How do we know that aliens don't exist? How do we know that the God of the Bible is the God of the Bible? How do we know that God's word is God's word? Those were all questions that I, that I wrestled with. Um, and then, and, and I doubted not only the, the truthfulness of scripture um, growing up. I mean, I, I was willing to embrace the idea that, that scripture was probably a good book filled with a lot of good wisdom probably a religious book, possibly even at, at some point, in some way, parts of it had come from God. Mm. Um, I was willing to embrace that idea. I was willing to embrace the idea that there were uh, possibly other sources of truth. Um, I would have rejected the uniqueness of scripture. I would have, or questions, I should say, the uniqueness of scripture. I wasn't convinced of that. I wasn't convinced of scripture's authority, but I can say that once God saved me, all of those questions of God's authority and truthfulness went right out the window. I mean, I didn't even have to, you know, get a Josh McDowell's book on apologetics or read something by Norman Geisler or B.B. Warfield on the inspiration authority of scripture. I didn't have to read any of that to be convinced of it. It was like mm -hmm. when God saved me and everything went from black and white to technicolor, I would have been a convinced uh, young earth creationist. I would have believed in the authority of scripture that this is God's word. I just need to understand it. Now, all of those questions, all of the, the doubts and everything went, went immediately away. When God I saved me, I became immediately convinced of the truth and authority of scripture. Just to, to hear that, a, a couple of things comes to mind. You know, one is knowledge of God doesn't save people. No. You, there are many people that I talk to and yeah, there, yeah, I think there is a God, you know, maybe out there that doesn't save us. Knowledge doesn't save us. Right. as we can hear right like you 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 were hearing this stuff but you were just experimenting you were kind of wrestling with other ideas and then something else that comes to mind is uh uh i have other friends you know that we share the gospel with and they're still wrestling with whether to believe scripture or their church history yeah because their church is the true church and that in itself just tells me, you know, once you have shared the gospel with the person at the end of the day, it's the, it's the work of the Lord. Salvation belongs to the yeah. Lord. And that person will not be able to come to the understanding and acceptance of the gospel. And, and, and really like you, like I didn't have to read any other books to convince me that the yeah. Bible is the word of God. <laughs> and you know, that's, a, that's something that I love that you said, because I myself have wrestled with trying to explain scripture with a friend, yeah. but it, it, it's, he's not there yet. He's just not there. No, yet. I, yeah. When I got saved, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that when I got saved, I knew everything um, 
that was revealed. Like I wouldn't have been able to give you a clear articulation of the doctrine of the Trinity or the hypostatic union or predestination and election or anything like that. I didn't know everything that was revealed, but I knew that everything that was revealed was true. Mm-hmm. So whatever was in that book, I was absolutely convinced that it was true, that it was authoritative, it was trustworthy and reliable, and that my life needed to conform to it. I was convinced of yeah. that in an in instant, all of that changed. Yeah. And uh, just even something, I, I don't know, I'm talking to you, just kind of uh, I've been bringing a lot of things that I've been uh, talking to other people on social media. There was another person on Twitter that commented on something that I had posted, and this person clearly is an atheist. Um, Things that the Bible, it's a, a, oh, great history book, you know, like really nice stories in there, completely denying, you know, like, oh, that this is the word of God or the existence of God. Uh, That person believed that once he he dies or she dies, I don't know whether has she, he or she, uh, but they, uh, that person just believes that uh, they just, and they 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 they, they will stop exi- existing like their existence will be over that's it i die and that's it like there is nothing yeah. else after death you know yeah. and it's just interesting to see it it's like yeah the person won't ever believe anything that god has to say in his word because the lord is the one who has to open their their eyes the lord is the one who has to give them the faith to believe to all of us yeah. right? right he is the one who gives faith is a gift from the lord and, yeah. and only when he gives us that faith, are we able to take the word for what it is, the word of God, you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And what about your family? So once you're making this transition, the Lord saves you. Do you have a position from your family? Are there like, how is that a dynamic with your family after you? So, so the dynamic um, changed a little bit when I, um, so, so that was 1985. I graduated from high school in 1990 and decided I wanted to go to Bible college. So mm-hmm. before I decided to go to Bible college, I had been pursuing and excelling in accounting. I wanted to be an accountant because mm-hmm. um, as an, as an unsaved person, and even as a, a, a newly saved person, I, I loved math. I loved counting. I loved numbers. I loved all of that with, it, it made sense. You know, it was, it was a black and white thing. You put something in this column, you put something in that column and they exchange. And so there's a structure, there's a logic to accounting. And I loved money. I was a very greedy person. So <laughs> any, if I could do something that involved numbers and money and accounting was it, and that was going to be my career. So that's what I was going to pursue, pursue when I got out of high school. And I figured an accountant, I mean, I know those guys made, you know, more than guys doing construction and, and more than guys raking lawns and mowing lawns. So that was a good money-making opportunity. And my mom wanted me to go into accounting as well. So when I decided to go to Bible college, there was not a person in my family who thought, oh yeah, that's going to be a good use of Jim's intellect and abilities. Nobody thought that. Um, Nobody wanted me to do that, but I I said, I want to do this. I'm going to go do this for one year. And everybody was kind of willing to put that, put up with that or tolerate that for a year. If, after my first year of Bible college, I would get out of that nonsense and, and go do something meaningful with my life, like be an accountant. That was kind of the, the thought. Mm-hmm. So my my mom was initially hostile to uh, me going to Bible college. She wasn't satisfied. That wasn't happy with that. And then at the end of my first year, when I decided to go back for second year and then third year, um, she didn't like that at all. She thought I was at, just throwing away my opportunities and, and my mm-hmm. uh, and my talents. And so she was initially hostile to that about Christmas time of my second year at Bible college. Uh, she, she totally changed her mind and said, I'll support you in whatever you do. So it was, uh, it was nice. And, and she never opposed me after that. She, 
She very kindly said, I'll support whatever you do. I think whatever you do will be successful and and I'll be behind you. So that, that changed. And she went from being uh, hostile to the idea. Hostile is the wrong word because that suggests violence, but opposed. She went from being opposed to what I was doing to being uh, in favor or supportive of what I was doing. And she's never turned back. She's been very gracious about it. I think that she, uh, I think that she thinks I've done all right with my life and and that Mm -hmm. the, she's happy with how, how my life has turned out. So I've never had an issue with that at all. What a blessing. And I have a good, good relationship with both my mom and my sister. They live right next door to me uh, here in San Point. Oh. And I love them both. And, and uh, yeah, it's been great. Wow. Praise God. <laughs> so how would you describe Jim before Christ and then after Christ? Um, Jim before Christ was um, some of my biggest sins or issues was hatred and uh, lack of patience. Um, I, I had, I would have outbursts of anger in my life that um, were just inexplicable. I would see something on a TV screen, like a, a commercial of somebody that, um, that would just for it, an inexplicable reason, I would hate that person. I mean, I would just be filled with rage and it would be, it could be a kid selling Oreo cookies or something. And there was just something about this kid that I would just, if I could go through the screen and strangle this kid, I would, I, I would just hate them. Somebody would say something in a certain way and I would just fly off the handle in rage at that person. And my mom, I remember my mom when I was young saying, I'm very concerned about your anger and your hatred and what is in your heart. She would express that mm-hmm. to me. And, and that's true. I, I just remember at times just being in, inex- I couldn't explain it other than just, there's something about this person that makes me want to kill them. Wow. And after I got saved that, that went away. Um, not immediately and not, 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 uh, uh, yeah, not immediately, but it, it did go away. And it was just one of those things that in a very short order, I started to have a more compassionate heart. And another thing, uh, before I got saved, I was very uncompassionate. I would have, I would have, I mean, I was very politically conservative. So I would have taken uh, political power and, and used it to abuse other people. I mean, I had no compassion for for the homeless, for, for the distraught, for the poor, for the downtrodden, for anybody like that. I was just very cold-hearted and hard-hearted. And that's something that the Lord has changed. Um, I was a very foul mouth person before I got saved. And that's something that changed immediately. Um, So so what happens in your life? What comes next after the Lord saves you? So so you want to know what, how I went back to Bible college? Yeah. Like what happens after the Lord saves you, you know, desires that you have what are you pursuing yeah yeah so all the way up until uh, basically february of 1990 i was pursuing going to become a, a certified public accountant that's what i was going to do um in 1990 i decided i, I went to a, a youth retreat a youth event at miller college of the bible up in pamish sketch about a 10-hour drive from where i live about two hours north and about eight hours east mm-hmm. went to a youth retreat youth event there and that's where they kind of make the pitch for the college and I decided then and I had a buddy that was with me at the time a friend of mine from high school we both decided we we're going to go to Bible college that fall and part of that was also um, influenced by a girl that I was interested in at the time I had met her at a previous youth event she was going to Bible college that fall so I made that same commitment and I thought oh this is this is great we'll be at college together and um hopefully the Lord will, will bring us together and we'll end up getting married. This could be my future spouse. That was my idea. And uh, she broke that off before Bible college ever got around that fall and which was fine in the providence of God that worked out uh, just fine. And uh, 
but I still ended up going back to Bible college that fall anyway, even though temporarily I kind of thought, yeah, maybe I, I don't need to go um, after all. But then I thought, no, the reason I was going was because I wanted to get a foundation, a Christian foundation in my life and figure out how to live the Christian life. So I should go ahead and go back. And, and kind of in the back of my mind, I thought, and if being at Bible college wins, or wins this girl back, then so be it, you know, but that never happened. And I'm fine with that. But I did meet my, my current wife. I say current wife as if I've had 10 of them, but I did meet <laughs> my first and only wife at Bible college that fall. We were in the same class together. And uh, so she went for one year. I went for three years. Mm. Um, so I made that decision to go to Bible college in February of, of 1990, went in fall of 1990, and I only intended to go one year, but I loved truth. And I remember there, you know, not, not growing up in a church, going home and not being exposed to Christian things really at all, even through high school, my after the Lord saved me, my exposure and my growth was very slow. And I really didn't, wasn't exposed to many books at all or uh, Christian music. I, I read, listened to a little bit of Christian music, but I, I never really was exposed to very many Christian books. I just, mm. I, I didn't even really know that they, that Christians published things. In fact, the, the very first week at Bible college, I showed up and paid my tuition and and went into the registrar's office to get my syllabus and and after registering, the secretary gave me this list and she said, here's your list of books that you'll need for the first semester. So go across the parking lot to the, the bookstore and there you'll get the books that you need for your classes. And I, I, I thought to myself, books like what I'm at a Bible college to study the Bible. What books do I need? What what books are there? I couldn't even think of a book like I thought maybe there's a like a dictionary or a thesaurus for writing things. I thought that's what I was going to need. So I walked into the Christian bookstore and I was blown away. I, I walked in and it was a completely new experience to me. I, I thought Christians write books. Like I didn't even know this was a thing. Here are all these commentaries on the Bible and apologetics books dealing with questions that I had and interests that I had. And I was just blown away. So I went from my final year in high school pledging to never read another book because I hated reading. I hated studying. I hated anything intellectual to now having, I mean, look at the books behind me on my shelf. This is my, this is like a third of my library on the shelves behind me. Now I, I not only read books, I love books. I study books. I, I just, I'm, I'm an avid learner. That first year created a fire in me for learning truth. And that first year just, I, I mean, it lit something inside of me that I thought never was ever there. And I went from hating school to loving studying and loving truth. And um, all of that happened really quick in that first year. And I wanted to come back for second year. And I talk about this in my book, God Doesn't Whisper, but um, I had a crisis that first year at college where I wanted to know what the Lord wanted me to do. And I had, I had, been, I had been imbibing this idea that God reveals are the steps of our life through these still small voices, impressions and promptings and nudgings and, and uh, fleeces and a piece in my heart and all of that, or, or just private revelations whispering in my heart. I wanted to come back for second year. And uh, I heard a lot of fellow students at the college saying, well, the Lord revealed to me and the Lord told me, and the Lord's clearly made it known to me that I'm supposed to come back for second year. Or I'm not supposed to come back for third year or whatever it was. And I wanted to have that same experience. I wanted the Lord to, to direct me and tell me what, what, what does he want me to do? And I didn't hear any kind of voice from heaven. I was listening and looking for signs and I got nothing out of it. And that created kind of a crisis that eventually led to me abandoning that view of divine guidance. But I ended up coming back for second year and then third year, not because the Lord revealed to me what he wanted me to do and not because he spoke to my heart or anything like that, but because I wanted to, I had an insatiable desire for learning. And I knew that if I didn't come back for second year that I was going to pursue being a CPA. But if I came back for second year, 
it was all or nothing. It was, I was going to come back for third as well. And then I didn't know what I was going to do. If I gave up my hopes and dreams of being a, a CPA and having that as my career, I didn't know what, I mean, I'm going to get out of Bible college. I'm going to have a degree in biblical studies. What's that good for? Like, what am I going to, what am I going to do with that? I'm going to go out to the job, job market and say, Hey, I'd like to be a, a, a contractor. And all I've got is a degree in biblical studies. What is that? that doesn't give me anything. So I knew that whatever it was, I was, I was stepping out and trusting that something was going to happen in my life. If, if I ended up pursuing three years, but I, I had to know, I had to get to the end of that course of studies. I had to have year two and year three. And eventually after year three, my wife and I got married. That was 1993, August of 1993. I took a year off and then I went back for the fourth year program, which was an internship and ended up um, doing an internship in an evangelical free church up in the middle of Saskatchewan on the next to the Saskatchewan, Alberta border there. Uh, that was my internship for my fourth year program. Wow. So, and because now you're pastoring a church, right? So while, yeah. so at what point um, did you, did you know, like that? This when did I switch gears? Well, yeah. yeah when, when did you I switch gears? Did you know, like, Oh, I think the, the Lord is calling me to be a pastor. Yeah. So, there was, there was, um, okay, I'm going to tell you a little bit of a story behind this. And, and, yeah. and I wouldn't say that there's a point where I felt the Lord called me to do this because I never felt at any time in Bible college, I never felt that I desired that I wanted to be a pastor. Mm -hmm. In fact, the fourth year I got, I graduated from third year with a three-year Bible certificate. That was it. The fourth year program offered a bachelor of arts in strategic ministries. Now, I don't know what strategic ministries is, but it was a bachelor of arts in it. And uh, the fourth year program was three weeks uh, away from campus on in an internship. And you, we could be like at a soup kitchen in a mission or associate pastor in a church. And some in the years prior to me going, there had been interns on campus at the college who were teaching interns and mm. sitting, going for those, those um, year two and year three at Bible college, there were uh, teaching interns who would come in and teach some of the classes and they would grade some of your papers. And so they were learning to be Bible teachers. That was their internship. That was their, mm. their mentorship. So three weeks out on the mission field, one week back at the college at, for classes. And uh, I, I knew the fourth year professor, his name was Phil Powers. And um, I'd grown to love him and uh, admire him. And he had been influential already in my life, um, even before I went back for the fourth year program. But he was the one who, who led the entire fourth year program. So when my wife and I decided that I needed to go back, because I came back to Sandpoint and I was just working here. I had a three-year Bible certificate. So I'm just working as a newly married person. I'm doing logging and you know meat cutting and whatever else that I'm doing to earn a little bit of money. Yeah. And and I thought I should do, I should pursue something. I, I kind of wanted to go into some sort of a teaching field. I wanted, I actually thought about becoming a teacher at a Bible college or a Bible school. That's kind of what I wanted. And people had talked to me about you ever pursue pastoral ministry. And, and I would always say, no, I don't want to be a pastor. That's not what God's called me to do. I'm not gifted to be a pastor, but I'd love to teach at a college or something. So I thought getting a fourth year a certificate, a bachelor of arts would be a step toward perhaps getting some sort of a teaching role somewhere. So that's why I decided to go back to fourth year. I called uh, the, the fourth year professor, Phil, and I said, Phil, I, I want to come back for fourth year next fall. Will you line me, give me um, an internship there at the school? I want to stay on campus and I want to teach classes there at the college. And he said, well, I think that the president of the college is 
eliminating that position. He's no longer wants any interns on campus. So you're going to be forced to be somewhere else, but I'll ask Brian and name was Brian Atmore. He was a, a friend of mine, the president. And, and uh, he said, I'll ask Brian if he'll make an exception for you. So I said, all right, I prayed, prayed, prayed that Brian would allow me to be a teaching intern at the school. And Phil called me back and a few days later and he said, Brian says, no, absolutely not. No more teaching interns here at the college. They had had them the previous year and now they were getting rid of them. So I said to Phil, I said, well, what, what do you have available? He said, well, I've got a past couple of pastoral internships available. And I said, Phil, I'm not going to be a pastor. I don't, I'm not called to be a pastor. I'm not gifted to be a pastor. That's not my temperament. I have no desire to be a pastor whatsoever. So he said, well, all we have available is a couple of pastoral internships. So I said, Phil, you, I will trust you. You know me and Brian, you both know me. I will trust you that you assign me an internship and I will suffer through whatever that internship is. I will do that for nine months and I will just trust that wherever you put me is where God wants me. And he said, okay. So he called me back a few days later and he said, we, we've got one at this evangelical free church in, um, up in Saskatchewan, um, a little bit north, about four hours north of the school. Okay. And I said, all right, I guess it's an associate pastor for nine months and eight months. I, I wasn't looking forward to that at all. <laughs> so I showed up at the church and to, to start. And within a week, I found out that there had been a, a major church discipline issue that had arisen between some families in the church. And so we had to work through counseling between couples and these pe people who had been involved in this issue had been friends of mine and had even attended the school I was attending. So I knew them because I had gone to school with some of them and they, uh, that we had to work through church discipline issues and marriage counseling issues and leadership issues and, and meetings with congregational meetings and church families leaving the church and going to another church and trying to be reconciled. And in the meantime, I'm teaching the boys Sunday school class. I have to preach once a month and I'm helping with administrative tasks. So like that first week, I had all of these things because people stepped down from various elements of ministry. I had all of these things dumped in my lap and my workload went from like a little bit to a lot. Plus I had the school workload. So for eight months, it was just a, a scholastic living hell. Basically it was, it was horrible. And I was under so much pressure. I was so burdened with so many things. And, mm -hmm. but during that eight months, I made friendships that are still in place today. People that I still call and speak regularly with today. Mm -hmm. And everything worked out well in terms of the church discipline issues that we were dealing with and the leadership issues that they were dealing with. Um, but I learned, I got a crash course, an eight month crash course in pastoral ministry at the end of that. And during those eight months, people would come up to me and say, someday you're going to make a good pastor. And, and I would tell them, I'm not called to be a pastor. I will never be a pastor. I never want to deal with this ever in my life. Wow. So I graduated fourth year at Bible college, convinced that I would never be a pastor. And then I came back to Sandpoint, Idaho in spring of 1995, it's 1995 by then spring of 1995, just got a job um, working for a friend on his farm. I uh, picked up a job in roofing, started doing roofing and did that for a little over a year and just doing what I could to, to make ends meet and to earn money and serve in the church. And I was teaching adult Sunday school class once in a while. I'd fill in for preaching. And our church was small as about 25, maybe 30 people at the most on a, on a really good week. You'd have 30, 35 people there, but about 25 real regular attenders. 
And my wife and I were one of them. Our church was sort of older. I think I, I joke around and say that the youth group started at 60. That was when you got into the 60 years old. Yeah, and then you were in the youth group and then it went up from there. My wife and I were the youngest people in the church. My wife's three, a few months older than I am. So she was actually, I was the youngest person in the church other than another young couple who'd started having a family at that point. Wow. But it was an older church and it was kind of a, um, a, a small, it was obviously a small church. And the pastor who was pastoring at the time, he wanted to, he wanted out of the pastoral ministry. He just didn't feel like it was his calling and he was logging and pastoring part-time and he felt that that wasn't what the church needed. So he, um, and he was having conversations with the elders and I didn't know this. And a couple of the elders were coming to me and saying, Hey, do you, would you ever consider pastoring a church? And, and just sort of putting it out there. I didn't know that that was ever going to be a possibility. And and I said, no, I'm not called to be a pastor, but I know people who can. And so I can go back and make connections <laughs> with the people at Bible college. And I mean, I know some great guys. We can bring them in. What our church really needs is someone from the outside to come in and, and start pastoring the church. And and um, that's, that would really be helpful for us. But I'm not your guy. I, I can help you find the right guy, but I'm not your guy. And I said that on a couple of different occasions to a couple of different leaders, not knowing really what was going on, that the previous pastor, his name was John, that he wanted to step down from pastoral ministry. And, and it wasn't for a moral issue. It was just time constraints. He didn't he felt like something else was needed for the church. And, and uh, it wasn't him. And he's now one of the deacons in our church. So he stayed here and is a good friend of mine to this day. Mm-hmm. So he, I, I, my wife went up to visit her family in Canada because she comes from a, a, a town about 20 minutes from the school that I went to. So she went up to visit her family and I was home alone for a couple of weeks and I went into church on that Sunday and um, while she was not there and John after, or sorry, before the service, one of the elders, the chairman of the elder board came up and he said, the elders would like to speak to you after the service today. And I thought, oh, what did I do? Like, did I say something? Did I do something? Did they... <laughs> What do they see me? I, I, I thought I was a church discipline issue. I, I couldn't figure what was going on. It was something is serious. And I could tell from the tone in his voice that it was really serious. And so I sat there through the whole service thinking, okay, what am I in for? Like, what are these guys? What am I going to, I'm just nervous, just almost sweating. And at the end of it, the pastor, John, at the end of his sermon, he said, as of December 1st, I'll no longer be pastoring Kootenai Community Church. And so I'm stepping down. And I thought, oh, yeah, now I know what now all the things started to click in my mind. I thought, OK, now I know what they're wanting. They're wanting to know if if I would consider pastoring the church. That's what they're going to ask me. So I thought, OK, I'm just going to tell them the same thing. I've told everybody else. No, I'm not the guy. I, I won't do it. I'm not called to do this. This is not what God wants for me to do. So I went in, sat down. All three of the elders are there. The pastor's not there, but all three of the elders were there. And he's uh, the chairman of the board said, so I, I guess, you know, right now, then, why it is that we've called you here. And I said, I do. And he said, would you consider pastoring Kootenai Community Church on an interim basis or even permanently? And I opened my mouth to say no. And I stopped. And I thought in that moment, just in an instant, I thought, maybe this is what the Lord has been doing. Like, maybe this is why I went to Miller. I got the education, inexplicably got this internship at a pastor as an associate pastor in a church that almost blew apart. I got this crash course in pastoral ministries. I have this desire to teach. Now here is this opportunity. Maybe I am the guy. Maybe this is why God has put me here. Maybe this is why God has providentially directed my steps to this point. So I opened up my mouth to say no, and I couldn't say no. And I just stopped and I said, give me a week or two to think about it and to talk to my wife and to talk to some friends. So um, I just, and then I went and I sought the counsel of some people that I trusted, some older saints in the faith. When I went up to, to pick up my wife at her parents' place, I sat down with the president of the Bible college and I said, Brian, 
here's the opportunity that's been presented to me. What do you think? I got his counsel, some other friends, and everybody said, I think you should do it. I think you should do it. And so that's, I decided to do it. I started pastoring in December, December 1st of 1996, 11 days before my oldest child was born. And I've been doing that in the same church that I was instrumental in my salvation. Um, and the same church I've been attending since 1985. I started pastoring in 1996 and that's more than 25 years ago now and still doing that today. But, you know, I, I just kept laughing because you, <laughs> your response was always, no, I'm not the guy. Let me, oh, I know some other guys. They're yeah. pretty good. Let me avoid <laughs> to do that. You know, it's just like, but to see like when the Lord has like something for you that that's what he wants you to do no matter how many times you try to run away from it avoid it like, yeah <laughs> you know it's yeah. like i don't know i just thought about moses for some reason <laughs> i didn't <laughs> i i didn't think that my giftedness or my temperament would match that uh, i think mm. mostly because i didn't understand what the role of the pastor was okay now now looking back on it in those couple of years before i started pastoring i was serving in a very pastoral way in the sense that people would come to me with theological questions or people would come to me with um, issues in their life. And I would try and counsel them through it. I would walk them through some things. I was, I was guarding the flock in the sense that people would come to me and say, Hey, what do you think of this teacher? What do you think of this teaching? And I was, mm -hmm. I was the guy kind of on scene who would do that. And I would talk to the elders, Hey, this is an issue. Here's the problem with this. And I was teaching and filling in pastoring and leading them that way. Even though I wasn't an elder, I was eldering. I was functioning as yeah. much as I could as a layman, as an elder. If we had been thinking in terms of what biblical eldership was at the time, if the church had been, then I probably at some point would have been recognized as an elder. And I, th I yeah. think so, but I was 24 years old. I was wow. like, I was young and I, I look back on it now and think, man, I don't know if, if I was the fool or if the people in the church were the fools to allow me to do this at 24 years old. But that's, that's when I started. I was, I was very wow. young and only with four years of Bible education and um, really no, really not a long track record of expository preaching or, yeah. or preaching at all. I was just very, I was very wet behind the ears as it were. Yeah. But to see that the Lord was already preparing you for what was coming ahead, you know, and for yeah. that point. And also that you were not so quick to say no at the moment when the final, like, you know, what the next question again for the same thing came up, yeah. but that you rather said, let me think about it, you know, and pray about it. Uh, talk to yeah. some friends and, and seek for the Lord's guidance basically. That yeah. Process. And there had been a, there had been a desire in my heart to do the things of pastoral ministry, even though I didn't recognize it as pastoral ministry to teach and to, to shepherd and to bring people along and disciple people. That was something I, I, I loved to teach. And I had been come convinced by that point that I had the gift of teaching because that's, that's what I enjoyed doing. And mm -hmm. I was, I, even though at, at the time there was not a big outlet in our church, again, only 25 people, the pastor, he was preaching every Sunday and his dad, the former pastor was teaching adult Sunday school every Sunday. So there was no, mm -hmm. there was no room for me to do anything. There was no other outlet, a small yeah. church of 25 people. It's not like we had multiple midweek services and, you know, Bible studies and Sunday night services and things that I could teach. So I found myself studying every morning before work and get up early five, five o'clock in the morning. And I would spend some time in study and prayer. I would come home and spend my Saturdays preparing lessons and preparing messages and stuff that I'd had no outlet to teach. I just love to study and put together lesson plans. I, I love to study and, and bring the fruit of my, my study together with the hopes that someday I would have an opportunity to teach this. And I, I just didn't realize what pastoral ministry was going to mean. And so then when I was finally asked, 
I would not say that God at that moment called me in the sense that I heard a still small voice, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but I do believe that God in his providence allowed me to see how the steps of my life and the, and the things that he had brought me through up to that point were the things that were necessary. He had brought me to that point and was in that moment that I was able to look and see, okay, divine, pro- divine providence has brought me here. And now I have this opportunity and none of this is by accident. God is sovereign in this. Is this what he wants me to do? And, and rather than just sort of denying it or pursuing something else at that point, um, I would say that at that point, I just, I just kind of, my eyes were open to maybe what the Lord was doing that I had not been seeing all along. And I had become frustrated that I had no outlet for my gift. And my wife and I were talking about possibly going away to a, a seminary and we were researching different seminaries because I thought maybe I need a, a master of arts. Maybe I need to get a master's or a doctorate. So maybe I should pursue seminary education somewhere. So my wife and I were actually looking at different venues and different places in the country and considering moving at the time um, that I was asked. And, and so when I was asked, I thought, okay, this is, this seems like God has just laid out in front of me the next step. And so I ended up becoming a pastor, not because I was called or I heard a voice or anything like that. I ended up becoming a pastor saying yes to that because God providentially guided me up to that point and put these desires on my heart. I just, I went back to Bible college, not because I heard a still small voice, but I went back to Bible college because I longed to study truth. And I said yes to the opportunity to pastor because as it turns out, I was longing and desiring to do the work of that ministry. Yeah. And just faithfully now saying yes to the Lord, to this opportunity. Right. right? Yeah. <laughs> and you're not only pastoring the church, but you also have written a couple of books that I was uh, reading. Uh, I, I saw online. And in fact, I saw that some of them are in Spanish. <laughs> they are. Two of them are. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I was like, what? Because uh, my first language is uh, it's Spanish. So that's why I'm, yeah. I was like very excited about that. That's awesome. So and I'm going to say the name in Spanish. So two okay. of those books are in Spanish. So the, the, the one is The Prosperity of the Wicked, La Prosperidad de los Impíos. And then you have Truth or Territory, Verdad o Territorio. So which I, I was just like, wow, I didn't know that. So that's something that I learned about you before we, we got to get on this yeah. interview. So yeah, so let's talk a little bit about that. How do you go then to writing books now? So... I started pastoring in 1996, and, and one of the questions that I was asked early on was about issues of spiritual warfare. People would ask me questions about, what about praying hedges of thorns and generational curses and binding Satan and rebuking the devil and different things that you would see on, on a lot of Christian television programs, and you would hear on Christian radio and, and such. And in my fourth year, um, one of the assignments was to read a book that was a holy rebellion by Thomas Eisen, Robert Dean Jr., um, Eisen Dean. And that book, A Holy Rebellion, changed my perspective because for the first couple of years of Bible college, I had I had been involved in all those practices, binding the devil, rebuking the devil, praying generational curses away and hexes and all the edges, the thorns and pleading the blood of Jesus. I'd grown up uh, and one of the things that I had been influenced by early on in my Christian life was Bill Gothard. And a lot of that stuff was part of the basic youth conflict stuff that Bill Gothard taught. So I had sort of imbibed that at Bible college because the Bible college in the dorms, the dorms, the, the amount of false doctrine that circulates in Bible college dormitories is, is unbelievable. And the professors who teach you in class have no idea what's actually being taught in the dorm or what's circulating in the dorm, the books, wow. the students are reading and such. So I, I imbibed a lot of that false doctrine in my fourth year, reading that book and through Phil Powers influence in my life, 
and his teaching, I came to realize that that was not a biblical perspective on spiritual warfare. So I wrote a paper on that. It was like four or five times the length that the paper required. I mean, it was, it was a lot of words on it. It was a thick thing. So I started handing that paper out to people that would ask me about these questions. And so I, I just would give them copies of my, my, my uh, essay on that subject of spiritual warfare. Mm. And because people had a hunger for truth on that subject, I thought maybe I should, I should take that subject and expand it into a series of articles and I'll start producing these articles in our church newsletter. So I published 16 articles on that subject in the church newsletter, put them online and they became one of the most downloaded resources on our website, more than the sermons, more than anything else of all the articles and stuff that I would put up there. People were, people were downloading the spiritual warfare articles. And I started getting, I started getting, um, uh, questions about that and emails from people in Australia and all over the world who were saying, man, this has helped me out. It, it helped kind of explain some of these things. Thank you for writing this. So fast forward a couple of years, our church is involved in a building program because we have grown and we bought property and we're putting up a new building. And I thought maybe what I should do is write, um, write a book and have it published for as a fundraiser for the church building program. And maybe it'll sell 10 copies. Maybe it'll sell 10 million copies. I, I don't know. But eBooks had just started becoming a thing, and at least the thing that I was aware of. And this is late 2014, 15, when I made this decision. And at that time, um, I had already written a series of articles before that on hearing the voice of God. So before I wrote the series of articles on spiritual warfare, I was writing, I had written a series of articles answering the question of how does God speak to us? Is it through nudgings and promptings and still small voices? And Phil Powers had been instrumental in kind of divesting me of that false doctrine as well. So I had abandoned that, which I had held in first year of Bible college when I was listening to hear the voice of God. I'd sort of given up on that by the time that I had got into fourth year. Hmm. And um, so I was, I had written that series of articles and I was writing the series of articles on spiritual warfare. I decided to write a book and I thought I'll go back and grab that series of articles on hearing the voice of God and basically just sort of like cut and paste, put them all into a book and sell it as an ebook. So I, I started working on that, trying to revise those articles while I was writing the articles on spiritual warfare and trying to preach at the same time. And this was just, I thought this is too much. So I, I set aside the voice of God and I thought, okay, I'm writing these articles on spiritual warfare. Why don't I just make them chapters of books? Like I'll just expand that and make that my first book. So I did, I published Truth of Territory in 2015, I think, 2014, I think it was January, 2015. And I just published it as an ebook first and um, it sold pretty well. And, and Justin Peters would mention it and it would sell a, a few books here and there and people started getting it, which I appreciated. And, and then I thought, well, I should publish a second book. I had a series of articles on, um, on the trips to heaven, a critique of, mm. of uh, John Piper's trip to heaven, a critique of the Colton uh, Burpo book and his trip to heaven. I had published two articles on that lengthy book reviews. So I put those together with another review of a book by Eben Alexander, and I made that an ebook. And then I started turning those into print publications, self-publishing on Amazon. And then I ended up preaching through Psalm 73, which is the prosperity of the wicked. And mm -hmm. after I preached that series of messages, I thought this really is those series of messages. I've left so much on the editing room floor to get that into two messages that I wanted to take all of that, gather it up and make a book out of it. So I did. And that was my third book. And then I finally thought I need to go back and now do the book that I started to do at first, which was hearing the voice of God. I didn't know what it was supposed to be called at the time, but I picked up those newsletter articles and went to revise them. And I thought, man, these are garbage. Like I wrote these 10 years ago 
And even though I agree with what it was I was teaching, I didn't deal with any of the original sources. I didn't deal with any of the actual practices. I didn't quote the authors. I just talked about these things that Christians are doing and sort of refuted them. And not really thoroughly, not really exegetically from the passages that people often use to promote these practices. So I thought, I'm just going to go back and rework those. So I went and I bought on Amazon this many books by horrible authors on that subject, claiming to hear from God, claiming to receive private revelations. And I spent two years just reading nothing but spiritual sewage to work through all of those bad doctrines, marking them up. And then I rewrote all of that material. And that became the fourth book, God Doesn't Whisper, which um, is the book that I'm probably most pleased and most excited about, because I think it was the, I'm glad that wasn't my first book. I'm glad that by the providence of God, it ended up being my fourth book. And um, I deal with that more, that subject far more thoroughly in that book than I ever did in that series of articles. In fact, I've taken that series of articles down off our website because um, the book is, is a far better treatment of that subject than what I had originally done 10 years ago. And you had a foreword by Pastor John MacArthur. I saw. I did. Was- yeah, actually, I know somebody who knows some knows someone who uh, is able to get that in front of John. And, and I was really appreciative of that. In fact, and I had met John a couple of times in a couple of different venues, but he has no reason to remember who I am. And I got the book to Justin Peters because I, I said, Justin, I want you to go through this and see if there's something you think I've left out or something I need to include or something I've included that you think is, is bad. And, and uh, so he read it and he said, Jim, I think this is like, I think you should send this to Phil or John and see if either Phil or John would write the foreword for you. And I said, I'm not going to send it because it'll just go in the circular circular folder if you send it they'll at least listen so he sent it to phil and he said phil i think you should i think you should consider writing the forward of this and, and phil said either i'll write the forward i'll see if john would so phil ended up putting it in front of john and i'm, I'm assuming that john pastor macarthur wrote uh, read most of it uh if not all of it and uh he was gracious enough to write the forward for it so when we finally when i finally saw him again there at the interview that you did with uh, with yeah. Justin in there, Justin and John interviewing, that's coming out yeah. on Justin's YouTube channel soon. And, and I was there and Josh, and you, of course, set up the audio and video equipment for that recording, which I'm very grateful for that. Mm-hmm. Um, I was there at the MacArthur Center for Expository Preaching for that interview. And then afterwards, I walked up and asked John to sign the foreword in a copy of my book. And that's when he, he said, oh, that's you. And, and, he, and then he put two and two together that I'm on Justin's YouTube channel. I'm the guy that wrote that book. He wrote the foreword. And so it all kind of came together. And he was very <laughs> gracious enough to now I have sitting behind me over here on this shelf is that copy of my book yeah. with his autograph in the forward. Yeah. And that that's truly is a, a tremendous honor that he would put his name on something like that. Yeah. It was really, it was really cute when he'd say, Oh, you're the guy that I signed it for. <laughs> yeah. So sweet. Yeah. Right. He it, wouldn't have picked me out of a lineup, but he at least knew <laughs> the book. And when I handed him the book, he's like, Oh, that's you. Okay. Yeah. So I thought, and, Oh, he he's not really pretty good. Like he, he's he really is. good remembering people's faces and even names. Like I'm like surprised, like how good he is like, in remembering. I'm like, his mind is still very sharp. Yes. <laughs> yes. He is such guy. a smart, such a smart, sharp guy. And so gracious and loving as well. He truly is a, yeah. a pastoral example to pastors and to the flock of God. Yeah. Amazing. And I'll be sure to put whenever the interview comes out by the time they will be probably out by the time that I uh, share this uh, episode. It, it was awesome. I, I It was an awesome interview. Yeah. So I'm going to make sure to include the the links here, the link here for the YouTube channel interview that we did during Shepherd's Conference with them. Uh, yeah. And then I'll make sure to add a link to your books also here so people can find them and 
learn more about them as well. Great. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, of course. And well, since we're talking about books, uh, <laughs> let's talk about um, what are some of your favorite books, like uh, books that have been helpful for you, you know, uh, since you said that now you love books. <laughs> yeah, um, I can tell you some of the books that have had a profound impact on my life. Um, because it, it seems like I, I do read, I, I don't read as much as I wish I could, but I do read pretty consistently. And um, there's some certain authors that I enjoy reading. I enjoy reading almost anything written by John, uh, John MacArthur. And uh, anytime he has a new book come out, I try and get it and, and try and read it. Some of the books that have had uh, been profound turning points in my own thinking, um, Biblical Preaching by Haddon Robinson, or no, yeah, Biblical Preaching, I think is the name of it, by Haddon Robinson on expository teaching. When I first started pastoring, since I, since I didn't think I'd ever be a pastor or ever be a preacher, I really didn't pay much attention in preaching class in Bible college. I did just enough to get by, and I couldn't have told you the difference between a, a subject, uh, a, um, sorry, a, a, a topical, topical is what I was looking for, a topical sermon or an expository sermon, um, inductive sermon, deductive sermon. I couldn't have defined expository teaching in my life dependent on it, but I knew it was all I had ever heard at Bible college. And I knew it was what I needed to do because I had that drilled into me at Bible college, but I didn't know what it was or how it looked like. So when I became a pastor, I, I had various attempts at expository teaching, but I went back and I got biblical preaching by Haddon Robinson. And of course the book rediscovering expository preaching by John MacArthur and the master seminary staff. I went through that book at word by word, line by line, trying to train myself to do expository teaching. I started listening to um, men on the radio. John MacArthur was one of them. Um, uh, Charles Stanley, these are in my early Christian life. I, I don't enjoy this, the, some of these guys as much, but Chuck Swindoll, Charles Stanley, David Jeremiah, John MacArthur, those were the guys that I was listening to. Mm. And um, John, and just hearing his exposition of scripture helped train me to, um, to exposit the word. So that was a fundamental, that was sort of a transformative book. Um, another one was um, Biblical Eldership by Alexander Strzok. We wrestled through what should church structure look like after I became a pastor. And we transitioned from a congregational rural church led by three elders who were elected by the congregation to a biblical eldership as outlined in Alexander Strzok's book, Biblical Eldership. So that was uh, his book. I thought his book was going to confirm everything that we were doing as a church. It turns out that his book overthrew everything that we were doing as a church. And, and it was just a, a complete paradigm shifting worldview mindset shifting book. As I finally understood what biblical eldership was, what the role of pastors was, and that our church was not functioning in that way and we needed to change. So that, that changed the trajectory of our church in a, in a very major way. And, um, and so that, that changed, that changed me. Um, it, when, when we got to the point where we decided that we needed to change our structure of church leadership, I actually called, I, I just searched online and in the online phone directory for Alexander Strzok and called up a guy in Colorado. And I thought, I hope this is the author of the book. And I called him late one night and he answered the phone and spent about 45 minutes on the phone with me, um, just explaining biblical eldership, walking me through that. And I, I see him every year at Shepherd's Conference. I kind of remind him of that. He's not going to remember that because that was 1998, 99, something like that, 2000. He, he wouldn't remember that. But I've told him, you, you had a profound impact on us for good. And uh, I have given out copies of his book like crazy. So that's, that's, an that's a book that's changed my life. Another one is The, the Greatness of the Kingdom by Alva J. McLean. Mm -hmm. 
that is a phenomenal book about eschatology and one that was just, I started reading that and I couldn't put it down. It's, it's not, it's not light reading in the sense that you just, you know, you pick it up and you kind of do it and while, during commercials while you're watching television or something like that. It's a, it's a theological book, but it is a phenomenal book on eschatology and hermeneutics and the God's glory and God's kingdom. So that was another one. The book Heaven by Randy Alcorn was another one that just was a, a life transforming book, a mind altering book. So those are some of the ones that have the gospel according to Jesus. Uh, this is interesting. My first exposure to anything by John MacArthur was one. I was in the internship in my fourth year and the pastor of that church. He said, have you ever read I was wrestling through um, I was wrestling through the Lordship salvation issue in one of my classes in uh, one of the issues in, in my fourth year class. And and the pastor of that church, he said, have you ever read John MacArthur's The Gospel According to Jesus? And I said, no, I, I've heard of John MacArthur, but I never read anything. I don't think I've ever listened to one of his sermons. And he said, well, and here's how he described John MacArthur. He said, John MacArthur always writes to the extreme. So if, if John wants to move you from here to here, he will write as if his position is clear over here, hoping that if he moves you a little bit, he moves you to where he's actually at, which is right here. And so he thought, so he said, so when you read this, just keep in mind, he's an extremist and he's writing as an extremist and he's probably not really where he's at in the book. And I thought <laughs> that's kind of a weird way of writing, but, but all right, I'll give it a, I'll give it a try. So I picked it up and I read all the way through it and I got to the end of it. And this was my first exposure to Spurgeon too. I, I think there's an appendix at the end of it that is a sermon from Spurgeon or a bunch of quotes from Spurgeon. I can't remember what Phil worked into the gospel according to Jesus, but something on Spurgeon. And I thought, man, the Spurgeon guy's right on. And then I got to the end of the, the gospel according to Jesus. I thought, I don't disagree with a thing that this MacArthur guy has said. I don't disagree <laughs> with any of it. So am I now an extremist? Like I, I read it and am I clear over here on this other extreme now? And so I handed it back to the pastor and I said, I love that book. I didn't disagree with anything in there. So he moved me not just past where he wanted me to go, but all the way to where he's writing from. And, and then he, and then this pastor was like, Oh no, you shouldn't, I shouldn't have done that. It shouldn't, that shouldn't have been, I shouldn't have given you that book. And then I started reading other stuff by John and that exposure to John and the gospel according to Jesus is, was, was what uh, sort of opened me up to um, not just expository preaching, but just how theology works and an understanding of theology. And so the gospel according to Jesus was another uh, very influential book in my life. Okay, perfect. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. So, yeah. and now for you, what are three things that brings you joy? Um, I'm going to, I'm going to avoid saying the Lord and his word, because I think that that's a standard one. And, and any pastor who doesn't say that shouldn't be on any kind of a podcast. And so <laughs> I will just check that box as one of, uh, as the top one. And then I will move on to the next three. Um, the next one down would be spending wife with, uh, spending time with my wife and kids. Um, I love being with my wife and I love being with my kids. So that's a set source of tremendous joy. Um, as by the time this podcast is released, this will all be common knowledge, but I now have two of my children who are expecting kids. So I am a grandparent. I haven't met either of my grandchildren yet, but oh. my oldest son and his wife are expecting a child at the end of June. This is 2022. Mm -hmm. And my oldest daughter and her husband are expecting a child in October. So they're going to be four months apart. And by June of this year, my wife and I will be uh, holding our grandchildren, uh, one of our grandchildren. And so that is going to bring me great joy. And just, I love being with my kids. I love our family time on Sundays 
after we get back from church, we, we all go over to our house and we sit around and we have a meal. We sit out on the deck or we sit around mm -hmm. the fall and we watch football, spend the afternoons together. And um, that that's the most precious time that I have is just being with my wife and kids. Mm -hmm. Second is the church that I pastor is a great source of joy for me. The, the people at Kootenai Community Church are some of the most generous, gifted, godly, mature people that I have ever had the joy of worshiping with. And uh, the, it is it is it is just endless joy. Yes, there are troubles. Yes, there are people that struggle with things. Yes, we get together and there are issues that we have to address. But it, that just the ability to be in a church that is not rife with church discipline issues and immaturity and false doctrine and fighting against people who want to change the church or want to change the doctrine or hate the preaching or hate the leadership is that is just absent from our church. And that's a, it's a gift of God's grace that that is so um, because there are a lot of churches and a lot of pastors. And I meet a lot of them at shepherd's conference that man, they just struggle year after year after year because they're in churches where the people are untaught and the people are immature and the people resist change and they resist sound doctrine. And I just, I don't have to fight any of those fights and I never have the leadership here is a, a phenomenal group of elders of godly men, mature men, doctrinally sound men. I don't have to fight with them. I don't have to fight with the deacons. I don't have to fight with the elders' wives or the deacons' wives or any of that. So it is just a source of great joy. And every Sunday morning is a thrill to me to be here with these people, to worship with them, to spend time with them, to say hi, to shake hands. I love them. I love this church. I love this church body. And, and I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. I've asked, I've had people ask me, you ever think you'll go pastor another church somewhere else? And I think, why would I? Like I, I would not, there's no other church that would have me. No, nobody else would want my, my aggressive preaching style or, or my personality. <laughs> nobody else would put up with that. These people do, and they seem to love me and I certainly love them. And I, I would not move on to anything for anything else. And I, I say that knowing that I also said I would never do what I'm doing today. But I, I have no intention of going anywhere, and I never want to move on to do anything else than pastor this church. I want to, I want to die in this church, pastoring this church. I want to pastor here until I can't stand in the pulpit anymore, and then hand it off to the next generation and and mm. go to be with my Lord and have everybody forget me. That's my goal. So this church is the second thing that brings me great joy. And then third. I will say that continuing to learn and develop and see the fruit of ministry in this church brings me great joy. By God's grace, I, I don't think that we see all the fruit of our years of service to the body of Christ. I think that there's fruit that happens. There are things that there's ways that God uses us that we never see in this life. And I I'm, I'm think that that's a gift of his grace, because I think if we saw all of that, we would be overwhelmed and we would remain, we would get prideful, I think. So it's a gift of grace that we don't see everything the Lord does, but it brings me great joy to see certain things that the Lord does through faithful service and my years of effort and my effort every Sunday. I, I see the fruit of that in small measure. I know it's a small measure, but I'm, that brings me joy to see it and think, okay, God is using, God uses me and my efforts beyond the walls of our own congregation. And he uses me and my efforts in the lives of my kids and my wife and this local flock. And I see a little bit of that each and every week and I love it. And that brings me great joy. Amen. And to think that the one thing that you were, you were refusing <laughs> to say yes. yes to, it's the one thing that the Lord has been using to bring you so much joy, joy. you know, yep. who would have thought like, we think yep. sometimes that the thing that we want is what, what is going to give us joy, but it's not. 
it's the one thing that the God that the Lord had prepared for us. Yep. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> How perfect is that? So I normally ask one last question, but because of our conversation earlier, I do have two more questions for you. And uh, okay. the first one is, why do we believe in God? And by that, I mean the God of the Bible. So I would say that the knowledge of the one true and living God is written upon every human heart. And we suppress that in, an, in our desire for unrighteousness. So that's Romans chapter one. I don't think that there's any such thing as an actual atheist. Everybody knows that a God exists and they know that God exists because the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen through the things that are being made. Men know this and they have that knowledge. The law of God's written on our hearts. So intellectually, we know that from nothing, nothing comes. There must be a God. Intellectually, we know that certain things are right and certain things are wrong. Men deny these two things, not because there is a lack of evidence of this God, but because they love darkness. And so because men suppress the truth and unrighteousness, they hate that one true God because he is righteous, he's holy, he's just, he's the source of all light, goodness, and truth. And they hate him because they want to remain in their iniquity. And they're even willing to suffer in their iniquity if they can have it in this life. So I would say that we believe in God because, first of all, he's revealed in conscience, he's revealed in creation, and then third, because he is revealed in Christ, and he has made himself known, and in revealing himself in Christ, God has made known to his people, his sheep, his elect ones, the truth about scripture and the truth about Christ. So we know Christians, as, as unbelievers know that God exists by creation and conscience, Christians know who that God is and that that God can be um, had in Jesus Christ, not because we have reasoned our way intellectually to that decision or that realization, but because God has revealed that to us through the work of the Holy Spirit and caused us to be born again and regenerated us. That's how we know that God exists. Amen. That was beautiful. Thank you. And yeah. now, every time that we hear a testimony, um, every believer might have a different story. But we are all coming to one point, and that is we need Jesus. Yeah. Uh, we are all united in Christ. So why do we need Jesus Christ? We need Jesus because we are sinners, and we all are. And this is what I came to realize in 1985. We are sinners by by God's decree. He has told us that we are sinners. We're sinners by nature. We, we don't. We don't, we're not sinners because we have chosen to sin. We sin because we are sinners. We are born corrupt. We're born lost. We're born at enmity with God. Scripture says we are enemies of God in our minds through our wicked works. We are, are darkened in our intellect, darkened in our heart. Our heart is are corrupt. We are totally depraved and unable to change our condition. So man is not born with a, a glorious free will that can decide to do good or to do bad. We are born morally, intellectually, spiritually dead and corrupt in love with darkness and in love with our sin, in bondage to ourselves, in bondage to our sin and in bondage to Satan and in the kingdom of Satan. And there is only one thing that can change our status and change that regarding us. And that is the work that Jesus Christ has done on the cross. God in his grace sent his son into the world to live the perfect life in our stead and then to die the perfect death in our stead. So his living was for us. His dying was for us. Mm -hmm. And we have violated God's law. We have lied. We've stolen. We've blasphemed his name. We have gossiped. gossiped we have slandered our uh, fellow human beings. We have committed idolatry. We have broken the Sabbath. We have lusted in our hearts, which is the same as committing adultery. We have we have hated our brothers, which is the same as committing murder. I was guilty of that. We're guilty of violating all of those commandments. And so we stand under the wrath of God and God's just judgment would call out for our blood and eternal damnation on the day of judgment. And so all of humanity stands condemned and under the wrath of God. 
And God, by his grace, has chosen to save any and all who will turn from their sin and repent of that. That's what turning from sin is, repentance, and trust and believe in the work that Jesus Christ has done and come to him in repentance and embrace him and his work on our behalf. And so we need Jesus because we are totally and completely lost. And the gospel offers us the very thing that uh, we need, which is forgiveness of our sins, and not just forgiveness of our sins, but the righteousness of Christ, that he lived in our stead and lived a perfectly righteous life, so that in the moment of faith and the moment of trusting in him, all of our sin is placed on Christ, and all of his righteousness is credited to our account. So we get credit for all of the good things that he has done, and he takes the blame, the suffering, the punishment for all of the horrible things that we have done. Um, so we get credit for his righteousness and, and he gets he gets the blame for our badness, our sin, mm -hmm. wickedness and iniquity. So that's the great exchange that has taken place. And that is what is provided for us in the gospel. So we need Christ because without that, without him and his work, we will die and perish everlastingly under the wrath of God and suffer eternity in, in conscious torment because of our sin and rebellion against a good and gracious and benevolent king. Amen. Well, thank you so much, Jim, for joining me on the podcast. It truly has been a, a really sweet time just getting to know you. And uh, thank you also just for uh, sharing this uh, last, you know, thoughts on Jesus Christ, who Jesus Christ is and uh, what he has saved us from. But also now that we can come confidently to our Savior, you know, in prayers and praise him for everything that he has done in our lives. And again, friends, uh, I will make sure to include the books from um, Jim in the comments and the description here. So make sure to check it out. And Jim, if you wouldn't mind just closing us in prayer. Yeah, thank you very much. Lord, I'm very grateful to you for your goodness to us in, in giving us this platform and this venue to make you known and to talk about spiritual things, to see your work in the in our lives and in the lives of others. And we just pray that what we have discussed here would be an encouragement to many and that you would be glorified continually through the lives of your very ordinary people with very extraordinary lives. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.